off in the distance. It's exhaling. Use body talk. The heart she blows. Where the ceiling of the early 19th century brought a flurry of transient visitors, eager to ship as many pelts as possible and head for home, turn-of-the-century whaling sparked a slower-paced but farther-reaching maritime migration. With chaser boats, whale-inflating compressors and explosive-tipped, gun-fired harpoons developed to a high degree of deadly reliability, whalers came south and started working their way through the Southern Ocean Rockwall populations, a resource previously untapped due to the speed of Rockwall's while alive and the negative buoyancy of Rockwall's when dead. But instead of brief, frantic visits, jumping from island to island until the hold was full of pelts or the larder empty of food, many of the whalers, led by the example of the Norwegians, established settlements. In 1903, Norwegian Amandus Andersen, sailing on the Chilean vessel Magellanes, harpooned a humpback whale in the Magellan Strait. A first in the region, the kill formed the basis of the whaling company Andersen formed at Punta Arenas and played a role in the Chilean government's drive to settle people in its southernmost provinces, including the sub-Antarctic islands. Norwegian skills and technology would give their project its backbone and held the possibility of a sizable return for investment. Chile became a whaling nation as American and British whaling fleets having exhausted the right and sperm whales in Arctic, tropical and temperate regions, flagged. Ice coffee regular, Norwegian Carl Larsen, last mentioned in episode 26, for his captaincy of the Antarctic for Nordenskjold's Swedish expedition, and his trek across the sea ice to reach Snow Hill Island and effect the rescue of his crew from Paulette Island, registered a company in Argentina in February 1904 to begin whaling operations out of South Georgia applying his experience managing an analogous facility in the Arctic to the capital supplied by Argentine backers. An anchorage on the north coast was selected for its combination of sheltered waters, land flat enough to establish factory and accommodation buildings, and a sloping beach to act as the flensing plan. Flensing is the process of cutting the blubber of a carcass, whether a whale or elephant seal or sea cow... Oh, I made myself sad. ...into strips and removing it for rendering... A flensing plan is a sloping surface on which a carcass can be hauled for minimum effort, while allowing a gradient suitable for the flensers to do their flensing. Larsen named his new village Grytviken, the Bay of Pots, referencing the iron cauldrons or pots used for trying out the blubber. Grytviken, staffed by Norwegians, Chileans and Argentinians, processed 183 whales in its first operational summer, and the success attracted more whaling concerns. By 1910, South Georgia hosted six shore stations and seven factory ships. Ship-based processing, pioneered by Norway's Kristen Christensen, offered a company the advantage of mobility, with the factory vessel following its chaser boats to the best hunting grounds and setting up shop in the nearest sheltered waters. But shore-based stations could return a higher yield profit per whale by rendering the meat and offal into fertiliser. In 1906, the governor of the Falkland Islands signed off on a pastoral lease for a shepherd eager to graze their expanding flocks of sheep on South Georgia. The grazier turned up at what was, by then, the busy shore base of Gritviken, Argentine flag a-waving and whaleboats a-whaling. Britain sent a gunboat to South Georgia 
under whose guns Carl Larson pragmatically agreed to pay an annual lease for use of the ground he was already using, and which Britain could only claim priority to on the flimsiest of grounds. Not really caring about anything other than the profit margins, Norwegian whaling industry delegates to the British Colonial Office in London sought clarification on territorial claims to Graham Land, the South Shetlands and South Orkneys, being told that these constituted British territories based on claims made by Foster and Ross the previous century. The Norwegians would need to seek permission from the Governor of the Falkland Islands to establish stations or to whale the adjacent waters. The Chileans and Argentinians were pissed off about this. Both nations felt these territories their own by right of adjacency, or something. The Argentines at least had Orcadis Station at Laurie Island, occupied under their flag and franking their stamps since William Spears Bruce and the crew of the Scotia cleared out in 1904. Two years was the time it took for the British Colonial Office to really, really rue the decision not to accept Bruce's offer of Ormond House as a permanent meteorological station. Britain attempted to apply ridiculously torturous logic that the fact that they gave Laurie Island over to Argentina actually reinforced their own claim to it, because you can't give away something you don't own. But we didn't give it away because we own it, which you can tell because we gave it to you, which we didn't. Here's my flag. It means X. Oh, your flag? Your flag doesn't mean squat because it's not my flag. My flag is a proper flag. You can tell because it's mine. I'm a little bit sad to see analogues of these arguments in play in my own time. People. What a bunch of bastards. So, Britain refused to acknowledge Argentine sovereignty because they never performed a claiming ceremony. And Argentina refused to acknowledge British sovereignty because they never attempted occupation. Lions drawn in the snow. Piercing contest. Wait for it. Comments! Between Larson's first season at Grit Viking and 1910, South Georgian whaling stations and factory ships processed 6,000 whales. By 1914, the total count topped 30,000, the effort having been ramped up by an order of magnitude over the second half of the eight-year occupancy, and Southern Ocean whaling was still decades away from reaching its peak in terms of catch-per-unit effort and outright catch. Closed-vessel steam rendering replaced the open-topped tripods, increasing the speed of processing and the oil yielded per unit weight of blubber. Steam-powered donkey engines were employed to haul whale carcasses onto the flensing plan by chains and horses, and at the peak of their efficiency, a shore-based whaling station could dismember and render down even an adult blue whale in a matter of hours. The South Shetlands also served as a home to whaling stations, episode 32 already noting the presence of many ships and whale carcasses at Deception Island on Charcot's second voyage south. In 1906, Adolf Andresen received permission from the governor at Punta Arenas to establish a whaling station at Deception Island, and to use a factory ship and chaser boats anywhere else considered Chilean waters, though these were not defined at the time. Norwegian whaling magnate Lars Christensen, son of Norwegian whaling magnate Kristen Christensen, teamed up with fellow Norwegian H.C. Korsholm, a merchant captain who kept notes about his whale sightings while operating extensively around the tip of South America. In 1908, they formed another Chilean-registered company with a plan to go whaling around the South Orkneys, South Shetlands and the Antarctic Peninsula in the Austral summer, and to follow the whales north up the Chilean coast in winter. 
while Christensen and Corsolm's concern folded after a couple of years of operation. The increasing pace of whale exploitation in waters Britain considered British, at least on paper and in speculative pounds sterling terms, spurred the British colonial office to action. They finally thought at time they got some serious flag raising underway. King Edward VII issued letters patent, a legal instrument calling into being a right, a monopoly, an office or a status by fiat, and the origin of patents in the form of intellectual property rights protection for an invention or new process. The letters patent instituted the Falklands Islands Dependency, giving managerial responsibility for Graham Land, the South Shetlands, the Sandwich Islands, the South Orkneys and South Georgia, to the Governor of the Falkland Islands. Wait, did you hear that? That's the sound of a war brewing, 70 years in the future. On the ground, this proclamation expressed itself as a government outpost at Grytviken to make sure the gross Norwegians, that's gross as in numbering 144, though they were working in a blubber rendering facility and even fastidious Scandinavians could be forgiven for letting personal hygiene slip in such circumstances, didn't get any funny ideas about, um, setting up shop again or being more foreign. Official officialness is officially official. The flag flew, and that's the thing, don't you know? The USA, Sweden, Belgium, Germany and France, the potential territorial counterclaimants of the greatest concern to Britain at the time, didn't kick up about the letters patent, but the Argentines were pissed. Bitter Spanish words prompted British diplomats to suggest ceding the South Orkneys to Argentina, but the colonial office, only four years out from dismissing the islands as worthless, would not hear of letting go of their valuable whaling territory. In 1911, the diplomats urged that perhaps the islands could be traded against land in Argentina, on which Britain could build a new British embassy, but the suggestion annoyed the Argentines, who didn't much care to buy something that they already felt they owned. The seeds of war didn't germinate just then, but they were lying in some fertile ground. Miss Wong, you have the pool. Where whaling previously involved longboats powered by human muscle and a hand-propelled harpoon, whaling at the start of the 20th century involved stalking a pot of whales as they fed or transited, selecting the largest animal in the pod, and matching their speed and heading until within range. On nearing the targeted animal, the skipper would hand the helm to the first mate, and make their way from the bridge to the harpoon gun on the foredeck. With the skipper giving signals to the first mate to fine-tune their course or speed, the chase might still last several minutes more as the skipper, the most experienced member of the crew, selected the best moment to make his shot count. The harpoon, propelled by a gunpowder charge, would shoot from the barrel of the harpoon gun, towing the harpoon line behind it from the carefully laid spool at the foot of the gun plinth. If the skipper's aim was true, it hit the animal in the torso, punching a hole through the layers of blubber and muscle to lodge in the thoracic cavity. The backward-pointing barbs would open outward against their hinged mounts, effectively quadrupling the diameter of the harpoon head, preventing it from dislodging through the hole it made on entry. After a fusing delay of several seconds, the explosive charge in the harpoon tip would blow, tearing apart tissues and organs with metal fragments and shockwaves. Hauled in alongside the chaser by the harpoon line, the carcass was made fast for towing to the processing works. This was the machine age, and machines made a routine matter out of killing and rendering to their components the largest animals the planet ever hosted. 
Thermoplastics, those polymers able to take on a new shape when heated and hold that shape when cooled, started making inroads on the markets previously serviced exclusively by baleen. Celluloid was invented in the mid-19th century in response to a competition to provide an ivory substitute for billiard balls, and Bakelite was invented in 1909 and used in almost everything. Combined with changing fashions in the new century, primarily moving away from corsetry and crinolines, market demand for baleen fell dramatically, and oil became the focus of whale processing once more. Whale oil provided the basis for candles, soaps and explosives. It wasn't until the development of shipboard refrigeration that whale oil could withstand long sea voyages sufficiently well to be used in food fit for human consumption. But large numbers of Southern Ocean whales would eventually end up on Western dining tables in the form of margarine, though that's jumping ahead a few decades. While no one in the Southern Ocean whale boom boasted direct experience of the seal boom years, six decades earlier, the lessons of that free-for-all and other historical examples of the tragedy of the commons were not lost on some whaling companies and external observers. Some whaling companies called for control measures to ensure the slaughter didn't result in an industry-wide crash, as happened with fur seals. By 1909, the embryo of an environmental movement nucleated on the efforts of Swiss scientist Paul Saracen, who urged the adoption of protected areas in which whales could not be hunted. As chair of the Commission for the Protection of Nature, Saracen pushed the German government, via the Society of German Scientists and Physicians, to start international negotiations to establish nature reserves in the Southern Ocean in 1912. His call for conservation went unheeded. Governments stood to lose votes and revenue if they tried to put a dent in the profits that the whalers were already making. While many people recognised the problem the industry faced, no one wanted to make the first, hardest, most unpopular move so no one did. More about whaling in future episodes. This was just to keep you up to date on Southern Ocean extraction industries as they developed while all the science and noble suffering and such was going on in the Ross Sea. Next episode we hit up the first of the five concurrent expeditions operating below the circle in or around 1912. Take care and appreciate your coffee.